regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast. We hold long-form in-depth conversations with data practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of the career. My guest today is Suresh, the chief architect of Uber's data platform, responsible for all data initiatives at the company, including the data book, data quality, and data leadership initiatives. Suresh was part of the original team that built Hadoop at Yahoo and subsequently co founded Hutton Works, which developed as a part of open source software designed to manage big data and associated processing. He's currently leading the open metadata project to build metadata APIs and specifications in a single place to discover, collaborate, and get to data right. So yeah, with that introduction out of the way, Suresh, it is my pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you. Thank you, James, for having me. Fabulous. To start our conversation, I want to go back into your educational background for a little bit. So I did some research on your profile, and I believe that you got your bachelor's degree in electrics engineering from the National Institute of Technology, Karnataka, in Mangalore, India, back in the 90s. Would you mind briefly going over, first of all, your upbringing, as well as your overall college experience? Yeah, so just a quick background on the National Institute of Technology. This is, in India, it's fairly unique. The college that I went to is one of the top 10 colleges in India. And the philosophy of National Institute of Technology is unique in a way where all different states in India have representation in the college. That means India is a very diverse country. Each state has its own language, its own culture, its own cuisine. So because I studied in national you know, NITK, we had representation from all over India in the same college, right? So you get to now experience different cultures and make a lot of friends from different states and a lot of these guys are friends for life. That's one thing. The second thing is it is central government funded. So the education is a lot less expensive and it had world-class facilities where some great faculty, right? And so learning there was really an awesome experience. The other thing that was also fairly unique about the college is college had its own beach. So it was right next oh. to Arabian Sea and beach and then awesome campus with great facilities. And you're living away from home for the first time with friends independently. It was best time of my life. One of the best colleges to go to in India. Yeah, for sure. And can you tell me why did you decide to study electronics engineering? Yeah, at that time, the top two engineering branches were electronics and computer science. I was programming even before at, at a much earlier age. And I thought computer programming, I can learn myself, but I want to understand, have stronger underpinning of how all of these things work. So 
I decided to do electronics and communication. <laughs> and uh, as part of electronics and communication, you also do a lot of programming and learn a lot of computer science as well. So that's the reason why I thought, let me start with the hardware and get a strong basics there. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I went to time at college and that focused on the hardware side before starting to the software side. And in fact, you actually got full into the software side after you finished your education. We spent about, yeah, I believe more than nine years in this organization called Cilantro System after you finished your school, initially as a senior software engineer and later as the director of engineering there. And this is all happening throughout the 2000s. How would you describe your overall experience working there? So... Cilantro Systems is the place where I learned most of what I know today. Just to give you a quick background on what Cilantro Systems did. In 1996, in the US, there was a telecom act that came out. The whole idea was communication was dominated and restricted to what we call as ILEX, incumbent local exchange carriers, right? These are AT&Ts of the world. In order to foster more competition in the market and open up telecommunication for innovation. What this act allowed was for others to offer telecommunication service, not just the ILEX. Because now smaller startups, smaller companies started offering telecommunication services, a lot of innovation started, right? So that's the time when voice over IP was a hot technology and Cilantro Systems was the voice over IP company building telecommunication services, right, product for telecommunication services providers to use and provide telecommunication service. So I had the opportunity of joining this great startup early. And now you're talking about telecommunication systems. It's a distributed system. It's real time. Uh, it needs to be highly available. I learned a lot from some of the great colleagues that I had, some of the senior engineers of the company. And at that time, we had all the state-of-the-art technology being used. So we were building this using C++. We had Java, very early Java coming in for application development. We had in-memory databases. We have RPC mechanisms that work in real time. And the system was actually pretty complex. I had an opportunity to work on most part of the system and learned a lot over nine years. It was an amazing experience. Now, towards the end, just to complete the story of what happened to the company, 1999, the stock market crashed and smaller companies that were entering to provide telecommunication services, they had tough time competing with the larger company. Then the second thing that also happened was the business communication and the landline businesses, right, related to telecom. They started taking second seat compared to the mobile revolution that started happening. So there's a lot of focus on mobile phones, mobile communication. So for a small company like us, being able to sell to companies, this large telecom carriers like AT&Ts of the world, the sales cycle was very large, right? And uh, this requires you to have a lot of money and a staying power, right? That is something that a startup always lacks, right? Eventually, because the market dynamics changed and our market, the customer segment that we are targeting changed, in the end, that startup ended much earlier than what we anticipated. Yeah, but I'm sure like even even that sort of challenges with a startup, like you already mentioned, you learn a lot from career development part of you as, a, as an engineer and as someone who is responsible for pretty much the whole unit division at a small startup like that. Very cool show. That's like the first job of your career. 
Yeah, no, that was a great opportunity. It was mm-hmm. a lot to learn, not just mm-hmm. engineering, mm-hmm. even other things. For example, we had built all these cool technologies that was early for its time. And it was trying to target a segment initially, which would have adopted this innovation. But because the market segment changed, those innovations were then too early for its time. It's not just about technology, right? It's about product market fit. And all of those things mm-hmm. were learnings, even outside some of the great technology related learnings that I had. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that context a little bit. In 2008, you joined Yao as a principal engineer working in the Hadoop development team. And I believe that you have also been a committer and project committee member of Hadoop ever since then. Can you talk about our Apache Hadoop? Yeah, first thing, you know, I was super fortunate to get an opportunity to work Yahoo on Hadoop. At that point in time, I had worked on telecommunication distributed systems. I was very interested in web scale technologies and Hadoop was a web scale technology. And I was fortunate to work on that technology. Just to give you a background, how Hadoop came to be, Yahoo was a search company. And in order to build search indexing, you build a map of the web. And uh, at that point in time, internet was growing at a tremendous rate. And initial technology that we had built for collecting and storing web map was not scaling, right? So we had scalability limitation of around 1,000 nodes. We had operational limitation where, you know, adding new nodes and handling node failures, all of those things were very hard in the previous technology that we had. Around that time, Google published two papers, Google File System and MapReduce. We decided that we will take inspiration from GFS and build and MapReduce and build a similar technology. And we were thinking of building it within Yahoo, but then we decided there was a project that was already there called Hadoop, which was very early. We decided that it would be interesting to take these great technologies that Google has as their secret sauce and make it available for everybody. So why not develop this into open source? So we adopted the open source project and we started contributing to Hadoop. And within a year, we had a 500 node cluster going and we continued to scale. In fact, the decision of leveling the field by contributing to open source and open sourcing this technology did work out really well. It was then adopted by Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn and all of that for large-scale data processing. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. We talked about some of the later evolution I do. In the next couple of questions, let's step back into specifically the use case at Yahoo. I believe that you also work heavily on the HDFS Hadoop distributed system. And I should mention a little bit about taking that expression from GFS, for instance, the system is designed to store a large data set reliably and the stream does not high bandwidth to its application. Would you mind sharing the high-level architecture of HDFS and the expert using HDFS to manage petabytes of enterprise data at Yahoo? Yes. Now, when it started, Hadoop was two projects, right, underneath it. Hadoop Distributed File System and MapReduce System. So I focus mainly on Hadoop Distributed File System. The whole idea here is Before this, any scalable storage required you to buy some NFS servers and things like that. And when you try to access data at large scale, the bandwidth that you have to this NFS system limits how much data you can consume, right? So a couple of things with Hadoop uh, that fundamentally changed 
how big data processing works, right? So, you know, and how it was adopted to all the other companies as well as a technology. The first thing is build it using commodity nodes, right? You don't need any specialized hardware, right? And horizontal scaling, right? You add more nodes to get more storage and more compute. Then the other principle was instead of the traditional, you read all the data to where you want to process it. The paradigm shift was you actually send your compute, right? Whatever your computation job is to where the data is, right? So instead of taking the data to where you want to compute, you send the compute to where the data is. And that is how huge bandwidth and large-scale data processing was done. Now, coming to specifically Hadoop distributed file system, again, it's a set of commodity nodes and you have file system namespace. That is your file names and which directories they are and the directory structure. That namespace is stored in a node called the name node, right? And so name node is a journaling file system. So any changes that are happening in the file system is journaled and frequently checkpointed. But the entire namespace is uh, stored in the memory, right? And then you can have multiple name nodes for high availability purposes. So that is the file system namespace. Now, as far as data is concerned, every file, and when we are talking about Hadoop, Hadoop is built for large file sizes, right? So you're talking about a terabyte or a few hundred megabytes of file sizes, right? They are not your normal files, file system where you can have a few bytes in a file. And so every file that is large is divided into blocks, right? And these blocks are stored on multiple nodes, right? So you have, say, for example, you have a file that has three blocks. First block is stored in three nodes, right? Node one, node two, node three. The second block is stored in maybe node six, node eight, node 11, right? So because you are, this is called replication factor. You can choose whatever replication factor and the replication factor is done for availability, right? If one block goes away, there are other copies that are available. And then because all these blocks are distributed across all the nodes that you have, now what you can do is using MapReduce, you can actually, if your computation is taking block one, you can actually schedule that job closer to block one on the node where, you know, you have block one stored, right? So that is how you distributed the workloads to where the data is. Um, and the because this architecture was really simple with a single name node having all the namespace and then the data distributed across data nodes, we could actually make it operational within a year. And I think within one or two years, we had scaled it to 5,000 nodes storing hundreds of petabytes within Yahoo. This also was adopted in a lot of web companies, Facebook and Twitter, LinkedIn, as I mentioned earlier. Yeah, thanks for really unpacking all these technical details, components of architecture, batch devs, and it just seems like the performance it, utility of the project is very um, received by, by Yahoo internally, as well as other big internet size company at the time, right? Now, continuing on the thread of the Hadoop journey, you spent about three years at Yahoo, I believe, and then around summer 2011, you attended the co-father and PPU engineering at a startup called Hardenworks, which focused on bringing Hadoop training and support to enterprise customers. And based on my research, Hardenworks is actually also funded by Yahoo and Benchmark Capital. What did you decide to make this career transition? Oh, it was actually not career transition for me. It was just going back to 
what I like to do. I like working in startups. I am a builder at heart and startups are great places to do that. So I was always looking at going back to startup and we had this great opportunity where Hadoop was now going beyond web companies and many enterprises wanted to adopt it, right? Because there is digital transformation that is happening, causing huge volumes of data. And Hadoop was the best way to process them at that scale with in a least expensive manner, right? Because of commodity hardware-based solution. So there was a lot of interest in getting a company started from VC community out of Yahoo because Hadoop was now getting traction beyond web companies. And so we had a product, there was market demand for it. We had awesome venture capitalist backing. We also had support from Yahoo, even though it took a long time for us to get that support. We had support from Yahoo. So it was a no-brainer in the end. Right? So it's in, in fact, it was a fairly safe startup, right? Compared to other startups that I worked in. So there was funding, there was market, there was technology. We had the product already built that is in the open source. So it was a no-brainer. Yeah. And is, is the founding team, all, all of them come from um, Yahoo? Hmm? That is correct. Yeah. I see. Let's zoom in talking about hardware works. I believe that the main product line of work is hardware works data platform, which include hardware technologies such as HDFS, MapReduce, PIC, Hive, HKs, Zookeeper, and additional components. Would you mind unpacking some of the technical evolution of the platform throughout your time? Yes. As I said, when we started Hortonworks, we thought there's this market, we already have a product, we start selling from day one. But the reality was actually a lot different, right? So we had built this technology for Atiyahu, which has a lot of engineers and they can operationalize, install, manage, all of those things, right? So... When we started Hardenworks, we realized quickly that in order to sell to the end, we need to have install, upgrade, manage, right? Ticketing system, packaging the software for various different Linux distributions that people have. All of this was something that we had to do, right? That, that was not there. And so it took us almost a year to build all of this things. As part of that, for installation, upgrading, and management, we built a new project called Ambari. The second thing was within Yahoo, around the ecosystem, Hadoop ecosystem, only certain technologies were used. We were using PIG, but then in the market, even though we were saying MapReduce and PIG is a way to crunch all the data, people wanted a SQL way of doing all of this big data processing jobs. So we had to adopt Hive against Pig and invest a lot in making Hive part of our stack. HBase is something that we were not using heavily, so we had to support HBase because there was a lot of traction for that. Apache Kafka was something that we had to add to the, add to the stack. So there were many, we were, we were also not doing a lot of streaming related stuff, so we had to add at that point in time, Apache Storm, we had to build ingestion mechanism, so there were many missing pieces that we had to build just to make it a usable, installable, manageable product, right? So that's where we spent a lot of time. So we also added support for Windows at the point in time. Microsoft wanted the Windows support for Hadoop. And then we had this large technology stack with so many projects that supports variants of Linux and Windows and all of that. So we had built some fairly deep, large uh, stack. 
Yeah. So it sounds like the challenge is that when you bring Hadoop to different enterprise, like you have to customize it right to the user needs and like identifying what the technology stack that they're already using and building a solution to, to arrive it and then bring it into the flow. That's the main thing that Hadoop works focus on for the go-to-market aspect company, right? Yes. Yes. And just kind of in addition to what you already said, reflecting overall in your time working hard on works, like what some of the key lessons have you learned from like developing body on source software design, management data processing? Yeah. So, you know, a few lessons. One is we were engineers working at Yahoo. We came out, started this company, but for a of years, we continue to treat Yahoo as our customer, right? instead of really understanding our real customers, enterprise customers. So we continue to focus on scaling and efficiency of the platform and the computation instead of efficiency, ease of use for our customers. Right? That's one thing that we should have changed, right? Our customers was different for Hortonworks. The second thing is making product easy to use, right? And building people efficiency and developer productivity. This is an area that we should have also focused more. In the end, I think other technologies emerged in some cases over to Hadoop because of ease of use and operational ease and all of that, right? So developer productivity and things like that. And then the third thing that I also feel we should have focused on is saying no to things, right? You can build, if you're short-term focused on customer needs and things like that, you may end up building a lot of things that may not be core to your technology. So you play a long game and say no to things. And avoid the temptation of today's revenue to what we are building as a company for the future. That's also getting your first product right before becoming a multi-product company, right? So again, right, focus on customers and customer personas, ease of use, uh, and their productivity. Yeah, I see. Focus on customer, so customer persona, the product usability, and then saying no to request the features. And I'm sure that this might be some of the lesson that you are currently applying with open metadata and see how taking along with that in initiative. And we'll talk about it later on in our show. Yeah, absolutely. The lessons that we learned from the past, we should just reflect on it and apply it. And that's what we are doing right now with the open metadata as well. Yeah. And then just quick out on how it works. I believe it was sold to Cloudera, right? Acquired by Cloudera. Maybe it's around 2017, 2018. Can, can you tell any, any interesting details on, about that acquisition? I don't know a lot of details about the acquisition. By that time, I had more out of mm-hmm. Heart and Works. But that is the consolidation that there were two competitors that were competing heavily, essentially eating into each other's revenue, right? With large discounts and things like that. And that merger made sense, right? Building one company so that you currently focus on the product. You know, that's a good merger. Now it's also gone private. Hopefully it's a time for building better technologies for the customers without the distraction of this public company limelight. I'm confident that they will emerge uh, as a better company. Yeah, thanks for sharing that inside. So in early 2018, you became the chief architect of Uber's data platform. Responsible whole data initiatives of the company, including the data book, data quality, and data initiatives. Which am I walking through the evolution of Uber's data platform throughout your time there? Yeah, Uber is a data-driven company. Everything is done by data, including real-time streaming data. 
So because of that, Uber had invested a lot right, in technologies, platforms, and in terms of data teams and the number of people working there. So there was a lot of investment that had been made. But there were a couple of things. One is people would say data is hard to use at Uber. Second is a lot of reliability problems, right? So you will have some metrics that is key for the company. And depending on who you ask, they will give you a different number of trips last month or a number of trips per city. All of these metrics would be different. We were trying to actually solve this problem by throwing people at them, right? We were hiring a lot of data scientists to make sure we tried to get this. And these were not working, right? So we had to fundamentally understand what the problems are and fix the root cause, not treat the symptoms. The first thing that I started looking at was, why is our data hard to use? And we had gone to the extreme of microservices, right? So we started with the monoliths and then that was not scaling. After Uber had tremendous success, we chose to go with microservices architecture and we had around 3,000 microservices at that point in time for 2,500 engineers. You can think about the complexity of the online data. One thing that I realized was each of these microservices have their own APIs, their own schemas. And when we did an analysis, there were hundreds of definition for core types like location. You have hundreds of types that are inconsistent with each other. People call location a point, point a location, a location has three fields, another location has eight fields. Essentially what you have done is you have built different vocabulary for each of the microservice. And when the data starts flowing into offline world, now you have to say that location means actually point, this location point means location. Then you need to normalize them, transform them. So that, that was a fundamental problem. The first thing that we did was we took some core concepts within Uber, like location, address, exchange rate, things like that. We built 90 standard types that can be adopted right across all the different microservices. Again, it's a slow migration. So that when you say something, a type exactly means one thing, right? And it will have the same structure, right? And it will be reused everywhere. So that was building vocabulary for online data. The second thing that we also did was data flows from online systems to offline systems where it is raw data, then it gets transformed, then somebody else transforms it to for their own use case and becomes dashboards, metrics, and machine learning models and features. We had around 250,000 tables and uh, you know, around a few hundred thousand queries and all of those things that are there. Fixing this just at the end where there are 250,000 tables by writing data quality and all of those things were not working. We had to take an end-to-end -end approach. So we started with online data should be schema compliant, right? So when the schema is changing, there should be code reviews and things like that. And then the data flows and all through this process, right? So there were a central data engineering team they actually build processes to make sure that they are building better data, things like that, right? So it required end-to-end -end approach using first principles. So that is what we ended up doing to make the data more reliable and better. Yeah, thanks for, for talking about, about the architecture design, the details, vocabulary upon our data as well as talking data quality from first principles when we ship data flows from online to apply environment, right? And it, it's outside. This is the only spirit you start on. So that's how you become interested in this whole topic of data catalog, data lineage as a way to centralize data vocabulary for the whole organization. That is correct. And that is what we are also trying to do with open metadata. Yeah, absolutely. 
Talking about the concept of going from first principle, okay, back in 2021, you co-wrote this very insightful blog post on Uber's journey toward better data culture from first principle. And more specifically, the five principles as outlined in this article include data as code, data is own, data quality is known, accelerate data productivity, and organizing for data. Can you explain how these principles manifest themselves in Uber's data culture? Yeah, so if you look at uh, what has happened in the last 10 years, right? There's data explosion, there's availability of platforms that provide you high scalability for storage and compute. But it's happening, right? People are just practicing data in an ad hoc manner, right? There is no process, there is no thinking behind it. You've just reacted to the explosion of data, availability of platforms. We have just adopted them. We are throwing tools and people are solving data problems. We have not looked at, we have not stepped back and looked at how are we doing data, right? What is required to do data better? And instead, we are trying to taking bandage approach, right? This work that we did at Uber was a sort of, let's step back, look at what is happening and approach this problem from first principles. So first thing that we realized was data has no test, nothing, right? People are just randomly making changes. Somebody makes change. Some downstream data sets are getting affected. The guy who is making the change doesn't even know other guys are getting affected. How are they are using the data? He's completely blind to it. He's just, I'm going to make a change in this data I'm logging without even understanding the impact. And these changes were happening in a schema compatible way, which means you're breaking all the code that is there downstream. And there's a lot of downstream code that is dependent on schema being compatible. So the first thing that we did was just like software has tests, Data itself should have tests. So any schema changes that are happening must be tested for backward compatibility, the sequence of events that are being generated. Then any new event that gets added that should be clearly understood and published. So that is where we started turning any data changes into treat it as code, have unit tests, have other tests, backward compatibility tests, and have code reviews, schema reviews. So that is the first one to reduce all this bad data getting it right right at the source the second thing that we had to also do is most of the times some people would look at why were we having so many data sets people would look at some data set nobody is owner no guarantees come with it they're like okay i'm going to take control of my own data and so i'm going to create another copy the second thing is sometimes people are using certain data they don't know who to contact when there are problems and things like that so Anything that is not owned will not come with any guarantees and the quality cannot be established for the data. So we started doing data ownership, right? Even when ownership is there, there are individuals that are owning the data. They leave the company, the data is our fund. They move to a different group, the data is our fund. So we started with data is owned not only by an individual, important data should be owned by a team so that it's team responsibility. The third thing is you built all these great applications. They're working great for the first time when you demo. But then some data problem, some silent data missing, data is incorrect, causes liability problems for any decisions that are any product that you have built around data. And so the data quality should be known, right? Which means if there are any issues, I need to know so that I don't send a report and a wrong report to somebody. Or if the data is not fresh, I need to know, right? So that I can do the right thing, wait for the fresh data. When data is restated, right? through backfilling, I want to actually look at what is the impact of that on my reports and metrics and dashboards, other things that we I have done so that I can take corrective action. Data quality should be known so that you can build trust in your data and reliable outcomes. 
finally, right, a lot of, we had lots of tools, people jumping from tool to tool. Tools are not built for the data consumers, resulting in a lot of lack of productivity and a lot of manual work, right? So we spent a lot of time consolidating tools and building features to improve productivity, right, for the users and user experience, improve user experience. Finally, right, everybody thinks that data is, comes for free, right? But you need to actually organize data, prioritize data, which means your org structure should be able to support the data, especially in case of Uber, we came up with the principle of domain ownership, right? There is somebody probably making online change. There is somebody else, some other team taking their offline data and transforming it. There is no communication between them. Instead, it should be domain ownership where, you know, a domain not only owns their services and online data, they also own offline data. And that's where organizing for that comes into picture. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks for explaining the thought process behind this five first principle. And I'm be sure to put the post in the show as well. Listeners can get a chance to do dive deeper and read through the details of the actual tooling and processes that the team at Adobe has implemented to actualize his principles. And this data platform is definitely one of the most, like a st- standard, industry standard that a lot of other companies, big or small, look up to, to build their own data platform. So I'm sure that some of these lesson that you just talked about, highly relevant to a good chunk of companies looking to view their own data platform. Yeah, and you can also see some of these principles we had, which we had independently come up with. Similar language is being talked about through data mesh, data fabric, and things like that. So people are now, I'm very happy to see people are stepping back and looking at what is the right way to do the data. I'm excited to see all of those new developments. Absolutely. So since April 2021, you have led the open metadata project to build metadata APIs and specification as a single place to discover, collaborate, and get your data right. What was John's motivation to start this project? Yeah, so from making transformation in Uber's data culture, the key lesson that we learned was if you understand your data, right? then you can do a lot of things with it, right? You can use it right, you can fix the issues, you can transform the culture. And so from that perspective, metadata is super important, right? People call data as an asset. We believe metadata is the key to unlock value from that asset. And today, the information about data, the knowledge about data is not tracked well, right? It is it is just not stored in a shareable manner, not centralized. And by solving metadata problem, which today metadata is just used for discovery purposes mainly, you can solve many other problems, data quality, data reliability. And the key thing that is missing is collaboration of people because data moves from people to people. That collaboration is a big missing piece in the world of data today. For all of these things, metadata is the answer, right? It can solve most of the problems and today that is plaguing the world of data. Right. And then when we are looking at what is going on, every company is building a metadata system. I myself have built two metadata systems in the past. It was my third iteration. So we decided that a centralized shareable metadata is key for getting your data right. And people are building it again and again. Right? In some cases, some of the open source metadata systems are built uh, not for everybody. Right? They're built for the companies where they got built. That's the reason why we did not open source the metadata project from Uber. Instead, we built it from ground up so that we can build it with the right architecture principles 
not architectural principles that works within certain organization, right? And their technology choices. Yeah. So, you know, metadata, open metadata is an attempt to build a metadata project using metadata standards and metadata APIs so that we can solve metadata problem once for all. And it then focus on building innovation around this metadata. And there is a lot of innovation that is possible. Absolutely. And you started this project with Danny, right? Can you talk more about your working relationship with him and what like motivated you to stride this partnership? Yeah. So I and Arsha have been working together for more than a decade now, starting with Hortonworks. And then we both also worked together at Uber. And we were working on this project that I was talking about at Uber, where we started understanding if you have, if you solve the metadata, right, there is many innovations and things that can be built around it. And we are both working on this same project. We strongly agree that this is the approach, this is the best approach for data. And we wanted, and we also love working together. So it was a no-brainer for us to take this hypothesis and build a product, right, that was very successful at Uber and bring it to the outside world. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for clarifying. And just to zooming into your previous answer on the motivation for studying metadata, you wrote this announcement blog post back in August 2021. And I guess the main thesis of that is that open metadata try to achieve the goals of reimagining metadata with five things, schema first, accessibility, API-centric, vendor-neutral, and open source. Can you elaborate on these design principles? That was a great summary of that blog from you and a great question. We talked about, so let's look at the different metadata systems that are out there today. Most of the systems don't even, this is built by data practitioners and all data practitioners know how schema is super important to consume the data. Good schema can actually make your data easy to consume. Bad schema can make your data not only hard to consume, you can get a lot of, you can make mistakes while consuming the data. One thing that has surprised me is data practitioners build these metadata systems and they don't think about the schema for metadata as an important thing, right? So they end up building some implementation and throw some key value pairs, property one and JSON bag of data. That is how most of the metadata systems are built, right? They're just glorified key value pairs with no strong typing, none of that. As I was telling you at Uber, we had fundamental reason why data was hard to use was there was no core vocabulary, right? There was hundreds of definitions of location, point, and things like that. We wanted to use the same data standardization principles here. That means have schemas that are strongly typed for entities, which are built using strongly typed types that are reused, that becomes a building block and vocabulary for uh, metadata. This is key for if you want to standardize metadata and if you want to make your metadata that is stored in the metadata system shareable with others, right? The second problem is because metadata today is not shareable, many systems like data quality system also has a partial metadata, data observability also has a partial metadata of tables and databases and things like that. Every system is a partial metadata system. Why? They can't Because they cannot share what is already stored somewhere, right? And that is because there are this one vendor proprietary formats, uh, missing APIs and things like that. You want to change that. You want to actually take schema first approach so that your metadata is consumable. May connect all your data and data systems in a central metadata repository and make it available through APIs so that any tool can reuse the existing metadata, right? 
And in order to do that, it has to be vendor neutral, community driven, standards based. And so that's the reason why we started this as an open source project. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the details behind these are principles and how the division that open metadata list look upon to. I was actually also going a little bit deeper into the documentation in preparation for this interview. And based on what I found out, the docs open metadata has some of the building features to power multiple applications, such as data collaboration, metadata versioning, and data lineage, which am I highlighting some of these capabilities for the listeners? Yeah, starting with our hypothesis that if you have centralized, shared, consistent metadata, many applications can be built around it. Metadata is only used for discovery, right? By what you call as data catalogs, right? For people to find what data exists. To a certain extent for governance, right? For tagging and things like that. There are many things that can be built. One thing that is missing is today collaboration is a missing piece that is not solved by anybody. Everybody says they support collaboration, but what we mean by collaboration is a data producer and a data consumer, a data scientist, they should be able to have conversation around the data right there, right? If some description is missing, you don't need to go to a Jira and create a Jira ticket just for description, which nobody looks at, nobody solves that Jira and description never gets updated, right? What we have built is uh, one activity feeds, right? You actually get to know all the changes that are happening in your data. Somebody tagged the PII, some new data got published, some schema changed some failure happened, some backfilling is going on. All of these things come as activity feeds. You can filter them and understand what is going on with your data of interest. You can actually right there, start conversation, ask questions, request descriptions, which becomes tasks that is assigned to the owners of the data. So that's the kind of collaboration that we are building. And then data lineage is, a, is metadata. It's just part of metadata. Versioning is also part of metadata, how your data has changed over a period of time. What we are now building is, this is something that we did at Uber also. We were building a data quality system, data observability system, a data compliance system, data management system. These were standalone systems. They were, they had their own database, their own metadata, all kinds of things, right? But then when we centralized all the metadata, some of these things like data quality, they just become workflows. You don't need a standalone system, right? You just go from the central metadata, get the test, execute the test, write back the results. So it simplifies the architecture tremendously. And that's what we are trying to do. We are trying to take all the standalone systems that should just be workflows. And data has great workflow systems. So you can turn data quality and some of the observability, many of these things into just workflows around metadata. Even you can build your own automation through workflows like data cost control, data deletion, data management. A lot of these things can be built using APIs. And we believe that many manual work, many things that are done manually today can be automated within companies for your specific purposes using APIs. Yeah, thanks for highlighting the, some of the key features as well as how the, the future of the, the source project might look like. And to that point, how do you see this concept metadata standard fit into the quickly evolving modern data site to sort of say so many different cloud-based vendors that are tackling different component of, of the whole data lifecycle. Yes, there have been up attempts in the past to build a metadata standard. Most of these are done in silo where there is no practical application, but there is just people sitting and writing the specification. They never get adopted because the comp the needs of when you really want to build a system, the, those needs are not met in the specification. I also don't think just building a specification and waiting for people to adopt is an approach. 
the approach we are taking is we are building a specification that is extensible, right? That is built in the community with the participation of many other tool vendors, right? That is how you can continue to build this. And we are also making that into a separate part of the project where many people can come and participate. They can freely take the schema. They can contribute the schema evolution by participating in the community. That's how we are trying to drive standards. One, community participation. Two, adoption of that specification. Yeah, and this it, it highlights the principles of being vendor neutral, rich API, and being extensible, as we talked about in earlier in your answers. That is correct. Yeah, and as we talk about product development, I believe that the open metadata committee strive to deliver new release every month. How has your team prioritized the open source roadmap to adapt to the community's needs? Yeah, no, community comes first for us. And right from the past experiences that I've had, customer is super important. Listening to customer is super important. And our community has contributed to this project. It need not be just through code, right? They test, they give feedback, and they ask for features. It's super valuable for us. Our monthly releases are feature releases. There are a lot of dot releases that we do in between. And in some cases, our community has asked for a feature. We have just built it that day and delivered it to them. Right. So we take community needs and prioritize it very highly. Second thing is we are also focused on not adding complexity, right? If there is 1% use case that makes 99% of other users life more complicated, we try to avoid that. And we try to provide that in a pluggable way so that people can make sure that they have those features, but we won't make it make the rest of the community users life more complicated by adding such features. So. Yeah, we have a roadmap. We get feedback for the roadmap. We also get continuously on a daily basis feedback on what is working, what is not clear, what features are needed, and always we are prioritizing. See, yeah. And it, that sounds like that touched on the, one of the points you mentioned earlier during your time at Hard and Work, which is saying no to, to yeah. features to the one that make your life more complex. And to the thread of the community a little bit, Open Metadata also have a Slack group, right? And then also you... The team hosts like bi-weekly virtual meetups over Zoom to talk about this progress. So I'm assuming that these are issues to, to gather all the commuters and contributors into one place and then share these updates with them. Yeah, that is correct. All these details are there in open-metadata.org, Slack channel for real-time communication. We have monthly meetups. We also have community office hours that you can join. And talk to us in person. So yeah, we have our community is growing tremendously, right? This is one of the fastest growing open source projects, and we are we are super grateful for our community. Absolutely. I, I want to talk about another articles that you wrote last year. The title is "Why Open Metadata Is the Right Choice for You," and it basically explained the architecture of Open Metadata, which went deep into the push-based and pull-based characteristic of metadata ingestion and consumption. Which might unpacking some of the high-level takeaways from that blog post? Yeah, so let's start with the architectural principles, right? Why did we not open source project instead we decided to build from ground up? The first one is in many companies when project is built, right? There are different organizations that have different ownership. There are architecture patterns that they've used. All of those things don't work for everybody. That's the reason why we built it from ground up. Which means that whatever we are using for our project to build the frameworks and the technology that we are using, they must have open source. They must be open source with a thriving community, 
right? So that the technology continuously makes progress and we are built on top of that. Instead of using proprietary technologies within a company, such as maybe their REST framework or their schema modeling language, you've decided to use all the open source, open protocols, open technologies. The second thing is, we decided to build it in as simple way as possible. One of the takeaway for me building a lot of things in the past is things that have least number of moving parts are easy to operationalize. They're much more reliable. So from that perspective, architecture-wise, we have not built too many components. There is only one metadata store and our dependency is on Postgres or MySQL for storing the data as a system of record. And then we have Elasticsearch that can be indexed anytime, right? That is not system of record. And then we have used all the open frameworks. Now going to push versus pull, I think this is a confusion that was, that came about because of another blog that came out. For example, Data Hub as a project has Kafka as a dependency underneath, which we avoided because metadata system is probably 5x simpler to operationalize than operationalizing Kafka. So we have not added Kafka as a core dependency, right? And then the second thing is, just because we have Kafka, it doesn't become a push system, right? Most of the data, metadata sources today, like databases and all of that, they don't publish events automatically. You need to actually pull, right, metadata from them in order to get their metadata. And so what ends up happening is, while you can pull it and then put it on Kafka and then consume it, right, on the other end, and that works great, right? In technology, in, in places where multiple subscribers are consuming this metadata out of Kafka, not just a, a catalog system. So that is the benefit in a large company. But in the end, what you've done is today we support, there is no push only system. You had to pull in anyway. So you have to support pull. But in, in terms of describing it as push, what has happened in some cases is, it's a pull, then push it to Kafka, then pull from Kafka and push it again to your metadata system. So it has become a pull, push, pull, push, right? Instead of what could have been just a pull and a much simpler, more robust way of getting the metadata, we have ended up becoming, making it more complicated. It's, that's the clarification. In summary, there is no push only system. I see. And so does that mean open metadata is like a combination of both push and pull? You can, if you want to do pull, push, pull, push, you can do it, right? Because we have APIs and all of that, right? We have connectors to connect and extract. Or if you just want to do pull, then we have injection jobs that can pull it. Now we also have client libraries where if people want to use our client library and just push it, if they want to make that change, that is also available. All options are available. Depending on what source you are talking about, what capability they support, you can first get the metadata in and then you can get metadata in any of these matters. Yeah, so, yeah, it sounds like you, your team's developing open media so that it can, yeah, like that, back to the earlier part about being extensible, right? Which is flexibility to, to use different ingestion consumption interfaces, regardless of the complexity here. Yeah. And I also talked about pluggability, right? If Kafka is a way for you to get the data from one place to the other in your company, you can also add Kafka, right? But doesn't mean everybody who doesn't need that complexity also needs to add Kafka, right? So that's where it is pluggable, extensible. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for going over all the technical details of the open source project. Let's take up your engineering hat and put on your father hat. Around the same time of announcing the metadata project, you also have been the co-founder of Collect, which 
powers the open metadata data initiatives, I believe with the SaaS offering. Can you share the long-term vision of Connor? Yeah, I think uh, most immediate focus for us is to make open metadata the best community and the project so that we can solve metadata problem, right? Once for all, there is a metadata system with all kinds of connectors, it collects and centralizes metadata. What we believe is once this metadata is centrally stored and available over APIs, a lot of innovation can happen. And that is where currently in the open source, we are focused on building applications of metadata, that is data discovery, right? Data collaboration and data quality. These are three things that we are building within the open source so that now you have applications that showcases what the power of metadata. In the future, future what we think is Metadata is stuck in discovery today, and we are adding sort of collaboration. We believe there is a lot of automation that is possible, right? A lot of automation that is possible to move the data that is not used from hot tier to cold tier. All of those things are just workflows and automations around metadata. We believe a lot of automation can be built so that people who are manually doing it, wasting time, all of this can be addressed towards better productivity. And that would be the focus of, continuing focus of Conit. I see. I guess the long-term focus for college is this automation and yep. component, right? Like all these different workflows that customers can potentially do when they already have this centralized metadata in place. Right? That is correct. For sure. Um, talking a little bit about the life of a startup father, hiring is a critical responsibility of any other startup father. What valuable lesson can be learned to attract the right people who are excited about mission college? Hiring is one of the hardest jobs of uh, startup founders. And if you see, most of our network is from larger companies where people are well settled and they may not be startup types. One thing that has worked out very well for us, which may not be a choice for many other companies, because we are open source, we have gotten some great people coming to our project, passionately working during their weekends and nights because they believe in what we are doing in the project and they are passionate engineers. So that's been the way we have actually first attracted few of our initial employees. And the second way we have been also doing this is when you attract great talent, they know other great talent as well. So we are using their friends and previous co-workers and attracting them. Having an open source project and getting passionate people, that's been our primary way. Yeah, thanks, thanks for sharing that. That's definitely the benefit of being an open source first company because you have the code, the interaction, all that is publicized so people can easily know what is it like to work with, with you too, right? Yeah, and the other thing is we are also, most of those technical interviews are hits and misses, right? You don't know what people are capable of and you're asking some algorithm questions and that may not be a good signal whether the employee will, engineer will turn out to be a great engineer. Our interviews are now, we actually assign a feature or a bug for the project and look at how these guys work, right? That's another thing that has worked out very well for us. Yeah. Have you thought about just the culture development of the company and how do you think about meeting a remote first culture for COVID? Yeah, so we are totally a remote only company. And from culture wise, at this stage where we are scrappy startup that's moving fast, our culture is the flat hierarchy, right? There is no, we would like to, for, for quite some time, have no managers at all. We want self-driven leaders, right? 
That's what we want to hire, who actually understand company priorities and make their own decisions and run with it, right? So we are flat, managerless, totally transparent, right? Company where, you know, every all the meetings and related information is recorded and sent to everybody so that people don't, are not pressurized to attend meetings, but they have trust that they'll get to know what they need to know. So very few meetings and heavily technically driven company and where everybody is a leader. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. So we talked about putting end users, officers, adopters, new employees. The last group is investors. I believe called it as backed by unusual ventures. For your Citra, what fundraising advice could you give to fathers who want to seek the right investors for their startups? Yeah, one of the reasons why we chose unusual ventures is because we had we had similar hypothesis, right? They had done a market research and what we were proposing just matched really well. So that, that chemistry is super important, right? Where you have common understanding of both the market and the technology and the trends and where you want to go as a company. That is super important. And the second thing that I would also say is talk to other people who have been funded by that particular VC. Not every VC will be a right fit for you or your culture your philosophy, right? Talk to other people who have been funded just to see if it is a cultural fit for you, right? And if it is a cultural fit for them, both ways. So I think talking to other people would also help and to get to the perspective on how the VCs to work with. Yeah, I see. So finding a firm that with similar thesis and then also talking with other fathers that by participate to understand their working relationship. Yeah. So Rush, at this moment of conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment. In which I'm asking you three rapid final closing questions, and then you can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the open source big data community whose work you admire. Joe Little John from uh, Jason Schema to Pojo. It's been amazing for our project. He does a great job. My co-founder, Harsha, he has contributed to Apache Kafka, some really significant features and many other open source projects. And then third one is in Hadoop, we had Todd Lipkin, who built some amazing features in HDFS. He used to work at Cloudera, so he was also an awesome open source contributor. Number two, name one book you would recommend for engineers to cultivate an entrepreneurial mindset. I think uh, Innovator's Dilemma comes to mind, but there are many other startup-related books. But innovators' dilemma is pretty important. Then finally, imagine that you can send out a tweet to all the early stage data infrastructure engineers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Yeah, so most of the companies today are throwing tools as bandages for their data problems. And many people think that managing metadata is, is tomorrow's problem. But if you do not start managing your metadata from day one, you cannot have strong foundation to build your data on. And you cannot have a great data culture of continuous improvement of data, strong ownership and collaboration. So even though metadata may not put, a, put off a fire for you right now, it's the most important thing for you to get right because it will avoid many future fires. Fabulous. I think that's a great way to conclude our conversation highlighting the importance of metadata for long-term data-driven culture by the organization. Very enjoyed chatting with you today. 
learning about your early education background, studying engineering back in India, your early career working at companies like Signature System, Yahoo, and Hardworks. As the chief architect of Uber Standard Platform, helping them with their quality initiatives and building a data first culture, as well as your current journey with the Open Metadata project to build a metadata API and specification, a suitable place to discover, collaborate, and get your data right. We also talk about various specific and technical design of the project, different principles on how it was architected, a variety of features on how the product is open source roadmap, as well as the topics in terms of finding the right use cases, engaging with contributors, hiring employees, and seeking the right investors for startups. I'll be sure to include all the links and articles and documentation that we discussed today to the show notes. This is have a chance to take a look and follow up and learn more about some of your work with the project in the future. And yeah, with that mind, I'm looking forward to some new release of the company and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Thank you, James. It was wonderful talking to you. Very well-researched questions within a lot of time and very thoughtful questions. And it was great talking to you. I had a great time. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.